Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're excited to be speaking with Henning Ringholtz, Senior Executive at the Small Foundation, a Dublin, Ireland-based foundation working to end extreme poverty in Sub-Saharan Africa by 2030. Henning, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what was the path that led you to the Small Foundation? I grew up in northern Germany, as I think you can still tell a little bit by my accent. I moved to Spain when I was a kid with my parents and then moved back to Germany, where I then lived for another seven years or so and worked in the spice business in a medium-sized German company, family-owned company called Hela. And with that company, actually, that I then moved to Chile and ran their Latin American business for a few years. I also started and ran a business there as a startup entrepreneur. I had an ambitious plan to be the first entrepreneur having a kebab business in Santiago, which I was. But unfortunately, for a very short time, it didn't work out as I had hoped. And so after two years, we unfortunately had to close the business, but came out with a lot of learnings on this. I moved to England then for studies in social and political sciences and also technology policy, and then worked for a while in strategy consulting and development consulting. The big change really was moving to Africa, to Sierra Leone for a year, where I worked in rolling out an initiative that was providing free healthcare for children under five. I I did that for about a year and then moved on within Sierra Leone to work in the cocoa sector with GIZ, the German Development Corporation. After that, we moved back to Europe with my wife and in fact moved to Ireland, where my wife is from. And I started a position at the NGO Goal, where I built a market systems practice. And so within that work, I, I worked closely with corporates, but also crucially, I turned the attention of the organization towards working with SMEs and really shifting the way how we needed to engage with enterprise, something that the organization hadn't done before, and indeed not that many NGOs had at the time done. I also looked at building an impact investment unit, and we came close, but ultimately fell short of that. In that position where I worked for about eight years, I had a lot of insights into the role that NGO can play, and really the profound shift that's necessary to create sustainable impact, working with enterprises, working with corporates, and being part of a market system and and shifting the market system rather than being outside of it. In 2016, I moved to the U.S. and took up studies at the Kennedy School, and also had a stint at the MIT Legatum Center as a visiting scholar where I met a lot of fascinating entrepreneurs, particularly working in Africa and building startup enterprises. And after that experience, which was a two-year stint in the U.S., I moved back to Ireland in 2018 with my wife, at that time now three kids, one of them American. And so we came back from America with a lot of experiences and then started my position at Small Foundation, which is, as you said, a Dublin-based organization that I had come across beforehand. And what attracted me to them was really a dual focus on the most difficult markets on the one hand, combined with models that are pointing to commercial viability. And Small Foundation is an organization that's really looking to overcome the tension between those two and finding pathways to create impact whilst also supporting sustainable business models. And that's personally what I believe is the only way how we can achieve true solutions at scale. 
This is fascinating, Henning. Thank you so much for sharing your story from spices in Chile to the kebab <laughs> business to Africa to the U.S. So you have lived in some of the markets that are the targets of your work. What did you learn from being in Chile and Sierra Leone that shapes your work now? I think that the first learning really is that every market, every country is different and that we really have to adapt to the situations. And when I'm now working at Small Foundation, where we have a sub-Saharan African focus, we really have to be aware that, that every market is its own universe. And so the solutions that need to be built have to be local and have to be embedded in the local circumstances. And that also involves a lot of listening. And frankly, a lot of humility often. And I think that the combination of that with also having ambitious goals of changing the way an ecosystem operates and maybe resolving and overcoming some of the key tensions, as I was talking about the tension between impact and commercial returns, requires us to look deeply and to listen to what the situations on the grounds are. This is very interesting, Henny, because in recent discussions on the podcast, we've heard both about how important it is to listen. And also for the need for philanthropists who tend to be at least currently wealthy white men from developed countries to actually listen to and bring in the lived experience of the beneficiaries. So it's very interesting to hear you echoing some of the best practices thinking that we're hearing from other scholars in the field. Why do you think it's so important and why is that so hard to do for many foundations and aid givers generally, including member states? Mm -hmm. I think it's an absolutely crucial point, and this is a white man speaking about this. So there's a lot of learning that I personally feel that I'm going through to actually realize that these obstacles are often in our own heads and they're invisible until we actually start looking for this and to see the patterns. And then I think that we have to look at this picture in, in a wider narrative of how we are seeing emerging markets and how we are painting, not just the markets, but also the way how we are imagining our world. And I think that the overall sector, but also clearly for myself, I feel that in the last five to 10 years, I think that I've come to realize that a lot of the preconceptions that I have been brought up with were built on an, on an erroneous worldview. And so I think that there's a lot of learning that we all have to do. That then translates into the challenges that the charitable sector has. And I think in many ways, the charitable sector is and philanthropy is a reflection of a wider world and a wider market system that we have, where if we're looking at the origins of doing good in many ways, I think we are now learning that we have to challenge this much deeper and to look at the issues in a much more profound way and change both our starting point for how we actually assess what the challenges are and how we can go about it, and also the execution of this. And one of the key examples of how we're trying to change things is, for instance, in work that we're doing with small foundation and working with local networks. So rather than starting from a position of finding peers in the global north, we're looking essentially in the countries that we're trying to strengthen of who are local leaders, who are local networks that are also locally run and locally led that can make the difference. And I think that's been a very interesting journey that we've had in the last years. We've recently started partnerships with two networks. One is called Invest in Africa. We've worked with the Kenyan branch of this African network, which brings together corporates and enterprises and policymakers 
and holds real prospect, I think, of changing the ecosystem from the ground up. Another one is the Uganda Ecosystem Initiative, which again works and is run locally and is essentially providing a platform in northern Uganda to bring together enterprises, corporates, local policymakers, and others in order to create sustainable change. Interestingly, when we do that, it's hard conceptually to an extent because it, it forced us out of our comfort zone, but it also is hard in practice because the networks that we tend to have as Northern philanthropists aren't necessarily linked up into local markets. So it really forces us to do things differently and to go about it differently and then hoping for different results. And I would certainly say this is a journey that we're on, but I think it's also a journey that we need to make. That's great to hear, Henning. We hear frequently from our position here at UNCDF from both member states, government officials, and entrepreneurs from least developed countries that what they need is support for what is already there, not someone coming in from the outside and trying to build something from scratch. So it's lovely to hear that Small Foundation is taking this approach. So you've told us a bit about the partnerships with the African Accelerator Networks. You also recently announced a partnership with Capria. So please tell us more about that one. We're very excited about it. It's a partnership that, as you said, was announced earlier this year. I worked on this personally for a long time, and we're very excited. Capria is an organization that supports funds and invests into funds, which, which aim to bridge the gap between early stage impacting and commercial investment. And so what Capria really does is it combines, I would say, the best parts of the investment world with also strengthening local funds and using that to actually catalyze commercial capital into these early stage funds. I think the key role that I see that Capria can play is achieving scale in a market that's been dominated essentially by small funds attracting very little amounts of money and then struggling to achieve commercial viability. What Capria is saying is that by building a fund of fund and by strengthening the underlying funds that are in the fund of funds, they can actually attract capital into the space that otherwise wouldn't be coming into that space. Of course, for us, the reason why we are interested in this is because we think that a key constraint for enterprises in sub-Saharan Africa is the lack of access to capital. And we also think that can't be bridged by grants and charitable donations, but actually needs to be bridged by having commercial capital ultimately come into that space. And the gap between those is quite wide. So what we're interested in is finding partners that can provide that bridge, that can build innovative models that can ultimately attract commercial capital. And we think that Capria has a really good chance of doing so. We are also very impressed with Capria. And in fact, one of the key members on our least developed countries investment team came to us from Capria. So it's great that you're working with them. They do have a fantastic model of bringing up entrepreneurs and then funding them. I wonder about the fund of funds, though. We know that investors have become more price sensitive and that many have moved away from funds of funds because the multiple layers of fees. So how is Capria dealing with that issue? I think that there isn't a one size fits all. Ultimately, I think that there are some investors that have those concerns. I've recently been on a panel with some other investors where they actually said that they don't really see any other way to get into these markets if it's not through a fund of funds. Ultimately, the pool of commercial investors is quite wide. And so the question is, can they build the strategies to attract the right capital into their fund of funds? 
I think the other part of this is the efficiency of Capria and really any fund of funds. And it's in actually building models that can be attractive from a fees side. Now, a lot of this ultimately has to do with generating returns on the other side. And so I think that there's a really challenging and also fascinating piece around how Capria or other fund of funds go about selecting the right fund managers who then in turn select the right enterprises to create the kind of growth that's necessary. I think there's a lot of, of learning for all of us in that space. Again, what I really like about Capria and what I think makes them stand out is the fact that they have a real orientation towards saying we need to be competitive in order to attract commercial investment. and We want to build a model that doesn't ultimately rely on grants to achieve that impact. And that, for me, stands out in the market. Absolutely. And then we would say to investors who seek impact that these markets are difficult to work in. And if you're looking for something with the lowest fees, you probably aren't going to get the impact that you're looking for because it costs more to work in these very difficult markets and to build up this ecosystem than if you were just doing the same kind of investing that you were doing in the past. So heading small foundation, as you've explained to us, works on systems change and strengthening business ecosystems for African entrepreneurs. And we've discussed how difficult this work is. What are some of the challenges that you see in trying to accomplish these goals? I think this is crucial of what we do, and it's also a real challenge for everybody. And in my time at Goal, systems change was already one of the key entry points that I had in order to make things different. In, in some ways, I've been working on systems change for, for 11 years, and I've always found it both necessary and extremely hard. Because on the one hand, I think we need to recognize complexity and try and understand how the markets that we're trying to operate and work and what our place in it is. But on the other hand, we can't that lead us to essentially being overwhelmed about what we do. So I think that working on systems change requires a lot of flexibility, again, a lot of listening, I would say, a lot of humility in terms of recognizing that we're part of a wider ecosystem, but then also to make choices, strategic choices, to say, this is the piece that I'm actually going to focus on. So whilst I recognize that I might just be a small player, to make a choice to say, here's where I actually see that we can make an impact. And I think that's the complexity of ecosystem. The other part of systems change that I think is hard is the time horizon that we give ourselves. And often I think that the time horizon that we have as a sector to achieve change is more ambitious than what can actually be achieved if we recognize that the underlying systems need to be changed. And I think that requires a whole change of narrative in terms of how we actually go about this. I'll give you a few examples in terms of how we have worked around systems change and how that's come into, into practice for us. At the network level, we have been a partner for the early stage capital providers network, which is an offshoot of the collaborative for frontier finance, which brings together uh, a whole host of players in the, in the frontier finance space. And the reason why we are partnering and working quite closely with the early stage capital provider network is because we think that the space of early stage investors requires systemic change, not just the individual effort of fund managers who are doing fantastic work and really pushing in some of the world's most difficult markets, but it also requires them to have a voice it also requires them to learning from each other. It also requires them to engage as a group, as a network with other players, particularly the investors. 
And that's something that we've been working with at the level of the early stage capital providers network. Capri itself is also an example of systems work. And in many ways, what Capri is trying to do is to change the narrative around how the world is seeing the early stage investment space. And I think that's important. I think that we have, in a way, accepted a narrative that essentially says early stage investment means it's grant dependent. And I think that what we need is examples of players who can actually challenge that and say, Early stage space might mean that this is a much less well-traveled path, but there are real opportunities here. And in fact, if we look at what the missing middle is, in many ways, the missing middle is a place of huge opportunity, but it does require different ways of approaching it in order to make that happen. I think those are some of the examples that we're seeing around systems change. I think that some of the key issues that we're seeing is in order to actually achieve systems change is recognizing that leadership and control has to be local and that outside players can only play a very particular role in stimulating and catalyzing systems, but they aren't and they shouldn't be the leaders within the system ultimately. And that goes to the question of who actually holds the power. And there's always a tension because in some ways, Unless we manage to unlock local investment and local leadership, there's always going to be a power struggle that lies outside of the market that we're trying to work in. And I think that's something that needs to change. On a personal level and on a level of small foundation, I think that what we're going through is a lot of learning around accepting that we are a very small player, but that by analyzing the systems that we want to operate in, and then make strategic choices, we hope that we can make a contribution to change. Thank you, Henning. And it's really fantastic to hear you saying words like listening and humility and local leadership and ownership. These are very key and difficult political topics sometimes at the UN, where developing countries constantly have to remind other countries that they are the ones who should be in charge of their plans for sustainable development, for poverty eradication, for improving the lives of their citizens. And what they're seeking are partners, not really donors per se, or not only sources of funds. So I wonder if you could tell us about some notable investments that you have made at the Small Foundation. I think that I've touched upon a few here, which I think have been really interesting around Capria, for instance. We've made a recent investment into an organization called Founders Factory which has just been announced in the last weeks. And this is an accelerator that aims to create and build enterprises across the continent, which create impact on the one hand and also have the potential to scale. We have teamed up with them for work essentially around the continent. There's other Founders Factory initiative across the globe. In our case, we've teamed up with them around Africa and particularly within the agri-tech sector. And what we're hoping to do is to build and scale over 18 agrotech startups across Sub-Saharan Africa. We're very excited about this partnership and we're very excited about Founders Factory. We think that their model, which essentially combines elements of fund management and investment on the one hand, and then acceleration on the other hand, holds real opportunity. On the acceleration piece, they do incredible work around taking a human-centered design approach to strengthening enterprises, both existing and entirely new startups. And they also take a lot of time in order to build them. So rather than having a very quick process, they're actually built a tailor-made approach to the way that they're working with these enterprises. We have a joint belief 
with Fundus Factory that the agri-tech sector is a space where a lot of change can happen and also where it's possible to combine social impact and commercial returns. And so we're excited about this partnership and we would hope that this becomes a real flagship for the kind of change that can be made across the continent. It sounds very promising indeed, and we've definitely heard about Founders Factory and are looking forward eagerly to hear what comes out of it. So, Henning, you talked about how the Small Foundation is making strategic choices about where exactly it should intervene in the process of supporting missing middle SMEs. What should other donors think about when they consider how their resources can make the most impact? I think that to the extent every funder has to make their own decision, and of course, the logic of why we are making decisions as funders is often very much based in the realities that that we're facing. And that's something that can't be changed. On the other hand, we were just talking about systems change and realizing that we're all part of a system that we work in. That in some ways, I think, requires us to be aware of that and to put into context the kind of pressure that we might find internally. And that might then change the way we go about it. Overall, I think this is a very young space and we're all learning. And so I'd be very careful in giving any advice because I do think that as a sector, particularly the early stage sector is is a very young sector. And in some ways, I feel that very much at the beginning of this journey. Having said that, I think that there are three elements that we would tend to consider. So the first one is, in some ways, I mentioned this, is how does my investment sit in the overall ecosystem? So how does what I do impact the wider market? And also, how am I disrupting the ecosystem that's already there? I think one of the key mistakes that I have made in the past is essentially assuming that there's nothing there in some of these markets. But when you look a little closer, there is actually a lot there, and there is an enterprise ecosystem, and there is, to an extent, a funding ecosystem. Now, this might be through family, and it might be through Uh, high interest rate bodies that are working locally, and those might be deficient in many ways, but it's not like there's nothing. And so I think that we need to understand, and again, this comes down to local markets, how the market currently operates and where then are the gaps that need to be addressed. That's the first one. The second one is the solution that I'm supporting is actually sustainable and scalable. And, And if it's not, do I actually have a strong justification for funding it? And that, to me, is maybe the most crucial point in terms of deciding whether we would intervene or not. It's really the question of, is what we are doing conducive to overcoming the bridge between commercial and grant capital, or is it not? Is it essentially cementing a situation in which we are extending a dependency on grants? And I think that's a really crucial topic, and it's often a very difficult one because it's not easy to find out whether the need is actually there in the way that maybe initially it seems to be. And I think hard choices sometimes can come with that in the sense that I really want to help. But if what I'm doing is actually sustaining a situation that ultimately can't be scaled up, then it might feel good, but it's not going to work. At the same time, we also can't lose sight of impact. And to quote my compatriot Weber here, he basically said, I'm paraphrasing, that you can't justify using a bad means to get to a good end. And I do think that the same applies here. So the question is, what is the immediate impact of our investment? Does it actually do good? And we have to be mindful and very careful, but also fiercely dedicated to the cause of social impact to create change. 
Excellent. Wise advice indeed. Henning, I wonder if you can tell us something about your time in Sierra Leone. I think most of the philanthropists, certainly in this space, have not spent time living in least developed countries or really frontier emerging markets. I wonder if you could tell us something about your time there that shaped how you view your work today. Sierra Leone was a time of so much learning in the very short year that I spent there. I feel that it really made me challenge a lot of my beliefs and beliefs about Africa, beliefs about my own ability to change things. And I think that in some ways it made me a lot more optimistic around the, the, the future of the continent. Where I was, and I have to admit that I was at the beginning very naive to this. I had lived in many places, but I'd never been to Africa. And funnily enough, that was coupled with having a, a lot of stereotypical images of what Africa might be like. So I was expecting this to be a pretty sad and desperate place. And that was not the case at all. <laughs> it was a place with a lot of opportunity. I worked in the health system at the beginning, which at a time where the country was at the end of the human development index, and there was certainly a lot to do. And my wife was actually working in the children's hospital, which at the time had the highest child mortality in the world. And so in a way, I saw reality from both sides there. And that's the case. And there's so much to do. And the complexity of trying to solve the issues Let's take any example here. Why aren't there more doctors working in rural areas? And you open that up and it becomes not just a question of funding, but it becomes a question that always brings you back into education. It brings you back into perceptions of working in rural areas. It brings you back into electricity and so on and so forth. So on the one hand, it really showed me the complexity of what needs to be solved. On the other hand, I saw so much entrepreneurship on the ground and so much inventiveness. And I worked closely, particularly in my second phase in the cocoa sector with people who were building alternatives and building enterprises in a very challenging market with solutions that I would never have dreamt of. And then I felt that there's a lot to build on here. And I think that's really what I'm seeing now over and over again, entrepreneurship as the solution to a lot of the problems. And that's not to say that and I do think that sometimes we make that mistake that we think that it's all on the entrepreneur and she is really the person who's going to have to change everything just on the power of her imagination and, and her enterprise. I don't think it's that simple. In fact, on the contrary, entrepreneurs work in an ecosystem that's often very constraining. But if we're going to solve this, I think we are going to solve that through the power of enterprise and through rearranging the ecosystem and strengthening the ecosystem in a way that it can sustain that. And that's something that I've seen firsthand in Sierra Leone and then many times over in, in the work that I've done since. Thanks, Henning. One of the things we do here at UNCDF is try to tell investors exactly what you're mentioning, that Africa and Southeast Asia and the Pacific, the areas where we work, are full of dynamic entrepreneurs with very exciting ideas and energy and dedication. And the only thing they're lacking is opportunity. So thank you for bringing that up here for our audience. So as we wrap up, Henning, what do you think is needed to accelerate progress towards the goal of eradicating poverty in Africa by 2030? And if there was one thing you could do to speed this along, what would it be? So I think that it's a big question. And I think that there are several elements that need to happen for this. I think the first one is, I think we need to bridge the divide between impact and returns. And we need to find pathways for commercial capital particularly in the early stage space. 
And I think for that, we need to actually break up a narrative that I think has been hampering this space almost from the beginning, which is to say that impact always means lower returns. And so in some ways, you dial one up, which means the other is down. And I personally don't believe that's the case. But the way to get there is to show by examples of why that's not the case. I think it goes both ways. I think you could have, and, and the world is full of initiatives that provide neither return nor impact. Those are not particularly interesting, but there are also those that combine both huge commercial return and also social impact. And that's what we need to focus on. We need to build those examples and we need to find out what worked and measure the results that are being done and whether gaps trying to fill those in. And I think that ultimately will change the narrative around how we are seeing impact and returns. The second one is integrating climate smart strategies into our thinking and in our action. I don't see that we will succeed if that's not a central plank of really everyone's work. And the third one is what I mentioned before, which I think to me is that tension between thinking entrepreneurially and recognizing the power of entrepreneurship and particularly local entrepreneurship and particularly female entrepreneurship, but act systemically. And if we do that, then we can be more than the sum of our parts. Thank you so much, Henning, for sharing your expert insights with us today. Thanks so much. And thank you also to our audience for tuning into UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.